Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you. Happy New Year. Woo, yes. And um, I'm just wondering how you are, how you're finding January. Because January is marketed to us as that reset month, isn't it? Where, you know, we can dig deep, take ownership of how we overindulged at Christmas and start fresh. We can set goals, set resolutions, and aspire to become the people we believe we can be. You know, that whole phrase of new year, new you. Anyone kind of know that sort of feeling, that January feeling? Yeah. And um, you might know this, though, that um, the statistic is 64% of everyone who sets a resolution, who sets a goal to be that better person, gives up on that same goal by February 1st. I think that just points to our human condition, doesn't it? That human condition that says, I have the strength within me to be my best self. I can look within, all I have to do is search within and work out what to do, and I can do it. If I try hard enough, I will make it. And yet, we fall flat on our faces most of the time. And that's why I think Nicola's very wisely chosen Titus to be the book that we're landing in in January this term, as we continue our healthy series. As right from the first sentence, if you have a Bible, maybe look at it again with me, Paul reminds us and Titus that it is only knowing God, only knowing God, God who is the truth, that leads to transformation, that leads to a godly life. That's the theme within Titus. We can't be healthy Christians. We can't be healthy leaders. That's the sort of uh, focus I have today, talking about how we can be healthy leaders without... Um, having Jesus without having the Holy Spirit. We can't do it by ourselves. We're not meant to. It is only by grace and only by grace that we can rely on the Holy Spirit to empower us to be faithful to Jesus, to be godly, to be healthy. And that's how transformation happens in our schools, in our communities, in our lives. So if you want to be a healthy leader today, guys, follow Jesus. That is the end of my talk. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm joking. I did the sort of teal and walk off there. <laughs> um, I have a few things I'd love to say a bit more about, and hopefully it will be really practical. I want my heart, I was talking to Levi in the car, was, um, yeah, wouldn't it be great if everyone did one thing a slightly bit different tomorrow to be that distinctive Christian leader they know they can be? But to kick us off, I think it's good to get some context for Titus, and there's the elephant and triggers in the room from the passage that maybe some of you have um, had running through your mind. But in this letter, Paul is reminding Titus of the mission plan he has for Crete. As you know, Crete is a Greek island, and at that time, it was a vital hotspot for trade and travel, connected up most of that world. But it was steeped in the false worship of many Greek gods. We all know Zeus. That's the only one I can name off the top of my head. <laughs> but lots more like that. And as Nicola said last week, Cretan culture was notorious for being really, really dark, actually. It was notorious for greed, for corruption, for violence, and particularly dishonesty. So a lot of lying going on. Paul and Titus had gone to Crete together, so Titus wasn't by himself at the beginning. If you look at verse 5, Paul says, the reason I left you, so he was there with him, um, 
so Titus is left there with the task to kind of set up these house churches to appoint leaders over the churches because they'd spread the gospel in Crete and it'd gone really well. Um, but they needed structure. They needed order. They needed leaders um, to continue to bring transformation to the island and that that culture would change. So let's address the elephant in the room, which is verse six, I guess. Um, from verse six, it starts talking about these elders, these leaders of the house churches. And it says an elder must be a husband, a.k.a. male, male, and it uses the male pronoun for much of that verse. So, does that mean women can't be elders? Is the Bible sexist? Nicola. <laughs> um, that is not what my talk is going to be focusing on today, but we do have a big question Sunday coming up where I do believe that question is going to be addressed. But my brief answer for you, if it's kind of niggling on at the back of your mind, is that firstly, as these were house churches setting up in Crete, most likely the homeowner was a man because in that society, men were the ones who had the opportunities to earn to be the breadwinners and they had the rights and opportunities that women did not. However, elsewhere in scripture, women are referred to with that same language as deacon, apostle, minister, leader. If you want some examples, there's Phoebe and Junia in Romans 16 and there's Lydia and Priscilla Acts. But for us today, I'm going to take the instructions more broadly and see how they can apply to us as leaders in our daily lives. I'm going to mainly focus on verses 5 to 9, where Paul outlines what healthy leadership is and what it is not. And if you want to know more about 10 to 16, Nicola addressed it a little bit last week about how these Jewish Cretan Christians were trying to warp the gospel by saying you need to get circumcised again, and Paul's basically saying, ignore that. Cool. So we're going to focus on verses 5 to 9. A healthy leader is, I have some slides, if you want to put them up, that'd be great. A healthy leader is, from verse 8, hospitable, loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, holds firmly to the message, encourages others with sound doctrine, and can refute to those who oppose the message. A healthy leader is not overbearing, quick-tempered, given to drunkenness, violent, greedy, and dishonest. I wonder what strikes you when you look at that list. For me, when I look at it, I see what God defines as healthy and good has a lot more to do with our character than it does our gifts and talents. Look at that list. How many of those things are actually to do with your character? It can be so easy to assume, can't it, that either you are a leader or you could be a leader or you're definitely not a leader because of a gift or a talent or a personality you may or may not have. And yet, in the kingdom, the gospel is... God looks at the heart. God looks at your character. Our character, if you want a definition, is who we are when no one is looking. Our character is our name. It's our nature. It's the way that we live. It's our behavior. Often in the hidden places first, and then it becomes more obvious as you live out in the world. 
And yet, I think we probably all know it's much easier to focus on building our shiny talents and neglecting our character. And this leads to a lack of balance. So when storms come, when there's a shaking, when maybe conflict arises, the foundation, your character, is shown for what it is. And we don't need to look beyond the news, the media, celebrities, anything, to see countless stories of people who are lifted up for a gift, a talent, a position, resource, wealth, whatever, that they have, but they fall due to a character issue, such as lust, greed, violence, all that kind of stuff. Unexamined anger. So on the slide, I kind of did a demonstration that the trophy represents the sort of characters we have. And you can have a really, really big trophy and a tiny little base, which is your character. And in a storm, that trophy will fall right off. But even if you have perhaps less talents when you look around and compare yourself, even though you know you're supposed to not to, if you invest in your character, that is what will help you weather the storm as a healthy leader. Invest in the bits that no one else can see in the hidden place with the Lord, and you will last, you will go the distance as a leader. Your character is vital to your health as a leader. There are no quick fixes to growing or developing your character, though it begins with self-awareness and embracing the conviction of the Holy Spirit when he puts his finger on something he knows he wants you to work on. Last year, I was on a leadership course, and about 60% of the course... It was for Christian leaders, and there's 25 of us. I'd say 60% focused on our characters before they even looked at anything practical. They wanted us to be really, really honest with ourselves. Who are we? What are my temptations when I'm feeling stressed? What am I like when I go home and I've had a bad day? They really, really wanted you to dig into those, those questions. They want you to know your weaknesses and know your strengths. So that sort of awareness really helps you to kind of invest in your character. So if you don't feel very self-aware, maybe ask a friend, like, what, what am I like on a bad day? It might be interesting to hear their feedback. Um, yeah, so character is really important. Your character is vital. And I think Titus is being really clearly told that the leaders he needs to appoint here have a strong, godly character. Now, as a sort of random tangential side note, if you don't know, I am 20 weeks pregnant. Thank you. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, uh, very happily. And in fact, another nice side note, me and Levi are going for our 20-week scan tomorrow. We get to find out whether the baby is a boy or a girl. And due to all this pregnancy stuff, I've got really, really into looking up name meanings as we search for the name of our child. Because um, I think na name meanings can be quite significant, can't they? And so in my study of Titus, I was like, you know what I need to do? Look up the meaning of Titus. Because that's quite a name, isn't it? I don't think we'd call our, our son Titus if it was a boy. But it has a good name meaning. And I think it's almost prophetic to the place he was called to in this passage. Titus's name means, does anyone know? Honorable. Titus means Honorable. And that got me thinking about honor, because 
You don't go to work for one day, or you don't go to Crete for one, one day of mission and get known as honorable, do you? Honor, to be known as someone who's honorable, is a reputation that is built over time, with consistency, with integrity in the small things. And so in the same way, I want to tell you that healthy leadership, your character growing, does not happen by accident. Healthy leadership does not happen by accident. It is the product of examining your life, examining your character, and submitting to the Spirit consistently, day by day, whilst still showing up to school, to work, to whatever life place you're in. You don't do it in a vacuum. It's part of this cool, part of this journey of being a disciple in our daily lives. So I want to share with you, before I get practical about your Monday mornings, tomorrow, whoop, uh, I want to share with you a leadership story of someone who I think really lived this out on a macro scale. Can we go to the next slide? Here we go. <laughs> Doug Conant is a Fortune 500 author, um, CEO, and committed Christian. And he became CEO of Campbell Foods, and you probably know the soup, made famous by that famous artist, Andy Warhol, thank you, Sam. Um, but apparently, Campbell Foods is like one of the top 20 food producers. I had no idea, I thought it was just soup. Um, but they're a top 20 food supplier in the world. But they were in a failing state in 2001. And Doug, our CEO who comes in in 2001, describes the culture he arrived to like this. I went to Campbell and we had lost our way. We had lost half our market value in one year. We were headquartered in the poorest, most dangerous city in the United States, in New Jersey. The headquarters were surrounded by razor wire. There were guards marking the territory because people were afraid to come in or out. We had fallen upon hard times and we had started making short-term decisions to deliver earnings and we were sacrificing the long-term. We had lost our way, we had cut spending, we had compromised the products. Everything was very, very dismal. We were the poorest performing large food company in the world of the top 20. And the first thing I notice, I wonder if you notice it too, is that Doug uses the collective we when describing Campbell Foods, even though he's the brand new CEO. This was his initial first reflection. He comes into the company and instead of distancing himself, blaming the last leader and kind of being like, yeah, you guys need to sort it out. It's all your problem. He owns the mistakes of the past as his own. And why does he do this? What does that tell you about him as a leader, as about his character? I think it tells us he's a humble, humble leader. Humility is often underestimated, but humble people, people who, who can own their mistakes, own broader mistakes of a culture, and ask for help, those people create teams of belonging, of trust, and of unity. And that's what Doug went on to do. And I'll tell you more about his story. But thinking about Doug, actually, I just wonder whether in our workplaces and our, in our schools, if we see something that's going badly, do we distance ourselves rather than acknowledging that we can be part of the problem as well?
just a, a short reflection. Anyway, back to Doug's story. So he went into Camp Bell Foods in 2001 and it was failing. And on his first day, he gathered his kind of senior team around him and said, look, this is gonna be hard. This is gonna be a heavy lift, but this is what I believe, this is who I am. He shared his story, he shared his ethos, and he began to work on changing the workplace culture before he even looked at how they were performing in stores. He recast the senior leadership of the company and he made a lot of hard changes. And over the decade of Doug's leadership, Campbell went from being one of the poorest performing companies to one of the best in the world. And yet, the reason I tell you this story is because what is remembered about Doug's leadership, the thing that he became renowned for, was something very, very minor. Every day, on his two-hour commute, yes, two hours both ways, he was driven in like a little limo, so he could do this. His assistant would print out all the tasks, all the actions that had gone on in Campbell Foods that day, which for us in 2022 would be like printing out the entire team's porthole or whatever, so you could see everything that had gone on um, across the 20,000 employees that he had. And he would take that two hours to read the entire thing, and then he would write 10 to 20 letters to employees celebrating what they had done right, celebrating their contributions of significance, and reinforcing the culture and values he wanted to have at Campbell Foods. And Doug said he did this because he was aware that in work, we often focus on what is going wrong and fix it, and very rarely do we celebrate what's going right. Over his time as CEO, Doug wrote 30,000 notes to Campbell employees. He had 20,000 employees in 38 countries. And wherever you went, you would see a note, handwritten note from him, displayed on his employees' desks. And so over time, those notes were no small thing at all. That note writing was a commitment. It was a discipline. It was not an occasional note that might have done the culture a bit of good. It was actually a disciplined, intentional approach to bring about culture change. And what I love about Doug's story is that it emphasizes the characteristics of healthy leadership in Titus. Maybe look back at verses eight to nine again. We see that Doug does this. He celebrates the good. He looks for the good. He creates a hospitable environment. He's disciplined with the practice. He encourages good in others, and notably, it transforms his workplace culture. So there were many things Doug did at CEO, uh, as CEO to up Campbell Foods, but the thing, the small thing he's remembered for are all those notes that he wrote. And for us, we're not all gonna be CEOs but we are leaders who can make a difference in the cultures we're part of. All of you are part of something other than being here on a Sunday, aren't you? This is just one snapshot of your week, but you are part of the bigger church, and we can go out and affect the life places that we're in. So to prepare this talk, like any good millennial, I went onto Instagram, 
And um, I did a little Instagram poll where you can ask people a question. And I asked people, um, what's the like top negative thing that you think affects your work or school culture? I wonder if we could get the list up so we can see. It's probably a bit too small, but I'll read it out. Um, the top things people said negatively affect their work or school cultures were selfishness, unhealthy competition, indifference or apathy, resentment, low morale, belittling others, comparison, lack of support, feeling alone, unreasonable expectations, blame culture, gossip, lack of transparency and dishonesty, assumptions, lack of feedback, and accountability. So looking at that list, it's a bit depressing, isn't it? All these negative things that affect our culture. But I want you to go back to that thing that Doug did. Do you remember Doug's we? He said, we at Campbell did this. And I think the first takeaway point for you guys and for myself this evening and tomorrow is let's sit with actually confession and coming to Jesus and saying we are part of brokenness in the cultures that we're, we are in. It's not just them, it's me too. And I think when we can own our part in the brokenness, when we can go to Jesus and ask for help, when we work on our character and examine the things that we know the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on, that is the first step towards something shifting. So firstly, maybe there is something you need to confess tonight to God that you're like, yes, I'm, I'm part of that in my school culture or my work culture. Secondly, I um, was struck that perhaps as Christians, we have lost a little bit of that desire to be holy and disciplined. Because when you look at Titus um, in that passage where the healthy leaders, they're, they're blameless, they're holy, they're disciplined, they're self-controlled. And it might remind you of someone like Ned Flanders. Does everyone know who Ned Flanders is? <laughs> You might not because it's kind of old now, but in The Simpsons, Homer Simpson has this goody two-shoes, hardly doodly neighbor, like um, Christian neighbor, and he finds him really annoying because he's so goody-goody. And I think perhaps as Christians, we've been trying to undo that Ned Flanders um, stereotype for so long that if anything, we've moved too far the other way and have become less invested in being holy, less invested in being known as godly. In fact, Perhaps if any of your friends or colleagues were like, oh yes, Abraham is so holy and godly, you'd feel a bit embarrassed, like, oh, no, I'm cool, I'm just like the rest of you, because we like to do that, don't we? We want to just be like everyone else, but in trying to be like everyone else, trying to show them that, you know, we're relatable, we actually lose a little bit of our opportunity to be distinctive. We begin to look identical when actually we are meant to be distinctive as Christians. Just look at verse 16. This is a, a heavy verse. Verse 16 in Titus. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. We're not meant to look like everybody else at our school. We're not meant to look like everybody else at work. We're meant to be distinctive. And the Holy Spirit, the one who is helping us on our journey to be healthy, to be healthy leaders, the Holy Spirit is sensitive and cannot stand sin. 
and so we can grieve the Holy Spirit. But just like we can grieve the Holy Spirit quite quickly, we can also confess quickly and be forgiven. And in preparing this talk, I really felt God put his finger on just two things. I felt like God was telling us um, he really wants us to be careful with our speech. And I was struck by in James, it says life and death is in the power of the tongue. And in Luke, it says from the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in our heart is the overflow and it comes out of our mouth. And it's something to be thinking about with our character. And these things might seem minor, but I felt like this is what God was telling us and challenging us. Multiple times in scripture, we're told to rid ourselves of filthy language. That's Colossians 3 verse 8. We're told to rid ourselves of unwholesome talk, of gossip, of coarse joking, of obscenity. That's Ephesians 5 verse 4. We're told to rid ourselves of swearing and cursing. That's James 3 verse 10. Similarly, do you know what the third commandment is? It's do not take the Lord's name in vain. And yet it's so common to fall into the habit of saying, oh my God, and just throwing around God's name quite casually. And we know that taking God's name in vain is a lot more than a three-word phrase. But yet, why would we use God's name so casually? Why would we do that? God is God. We are not. The world takes God's name casually. Let's lift God up to the honor that he deserves. Let's honor him with our speech. Let's be people that are distinctive in the things that we say and honor God at all times, even in the little things, even when everybody else says it, even when everybody else swears and makes those rude jokes and the banter's just a bit gray. I think God is asking us to go to a higher standard. What if we reclaimed the Christian call to be holy, to be godly? He had a word as we were praying, blessed are the pure in heart. And yet I think we've become afraid of purity, afraid to stand out. And my question to you today, but is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth you standing out? Is Jesus worth you being distinctive? Is he worth you standing up and saying, I'm actually not going to live like that. I want to be holy. I want to be godly. I don't care what you think. Is Jesus worth it? And finally, a thing for us to take away tomorrow. What is a consistent thing you could do to challenge maybe a negative culture that's in your school or in your workplace? And challenging a negative culture doesn't always look like withdrawing or calling something out. It can look like what Doug did, which was celebrating the good, noticing what is godly in your workplace culture. Um, we see in the passage that one of the key sins of Crete, Cretan culture was dishonesty. And so Paul highlights that that's in opposition to firstly God's character in verse 2 and also the character of a leader. And so for us, what is the dominant culture at your workplace? What's the dominant culture at your school or your place of life? Is it lying? Is it fear? Is it gossip? And my question for us to reflect on now, as I come into land, I said the phrase, <laughs> is 
what would showing up in the opposite spirit look like to that? If that is the dominant culture, what's the opposite spirit that you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can bring and can bring transformation? So I have a few thoughts on common, common ones. For example, gossip. Gossip is so common because it's so easy. It's such a cheap way to create that false intimacy that we long for. Gossip creates a way to connect because we all have a deep desire to belong, don't we? We all have a deep desire to have friends and to be able to say something at the coffee time or whatever. But ultimately, gossip is a culture killer. It creates more distrust and disconnection and bitterness. It's not, um, it's not worth the breath it takes. So what is the opposite spirit to gossip? If re- the reason we gossip is because we want to actually connect and belong and find real friends, maybe the opposite spirit is intentionally inviting a few of your colleagues or a few of your friends out for a lunch with the rule that you can't talk about work, or you can't talk about school, but everyone has to share one silly childhood story. (laughs) Like something random that just creates a different culture that you want to create and brings that sense of connection of getting to know people more. Here's another example. Is there a culture of fear and comparison at your school? This particularly can happen around exam time. So what was showing up in the opposite spirit to fear and comparison look like? What if, during exams, you showed up early, but instead of going to that crazy, frantic, last-minute revision session in the library where everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. What if you went to the main hall or just stood outside and prayed quietly and just spent the time in prayer? Or maybe if conversations end up getting quite negative after exams or before, when everyone's like, oh, I'm, I definitely failed that, or when results come and someone says, oh, I'm so sad, I only got 80%, oh, and you're like, why? What if whenever conversations get quite negative and fear-based, you have a mantra, you have a phrase that you always say to disarm it? What if that phrase was something like, grades don't define us? Grades don't define us. What if it's something like, there's more to life than this. I believe God has a plan for me. That's you getting into quite like evangelical teaching there. But you can have something that you say all the time that your friends start to kind of listen to and connect with. And they begin to expect it if you're consistent. And they can pick up on it. You can be a culture changer at your school. You don't have to go with the the whole tide of the fear and the comparison. You can make a difference because you have the Holy Spirit empowering you to be free from fear. If your culture at work is selfish and competitive, what would bringing some fun and generosity look like? If there's low morale and belittling, what would building each other up and offering joy look like as a habit, as something consistent like Doug, the CEO, did? Healthy leadership does not happen by accident. It is the product of examining your life, examining your character, and relying on the Holy Spirit day by day to show up, to be the Christian leader, to be the godly leader. It is a long obedience in the same direction. We become distinctive, we become healthy leaders when we know how much we need Jesus. So let's come to him afresh tonight. Amen. Thank you.